Hey there, how's it going? This is James Tripp. This is episode 18 of Agents of Everything. And the title of this episode is A Note on Organizing Reality. Now, I'm making this episode right now as a result of a minor synchronicity, a minor alignment of things. The two things that have come together in this minor synchronicity are, number one, I am in the middle of writing a contribution for Freddie Jackman's forthcoming book, The Exquisite Art of Hypnosis. Now, Freddie's written the bulk of this book himself, but he's asked for some submissions. What I'm submitting is a piece on how I think about hypnosis versus perhaps how the traditional approach to hypnosis might be run. And the way I work with hypnosis is very different from classical hypnosis. And the idea of classical hypnosis is that normally people are in an everyday waking state of consciousness and that our job as hypnotists is to alter that state, to induce a state of hypnosis or hypnotic trance. And this is a particular signature state that traditionally is said to render people perhaps open to suggestion in a way they would not otherwise be. Now, this podcast is not about hypnosis. This podcast is about how human beings, we human beings, engage with the world and get the results that we want. But there's an overlap here because we're always engaging with the world through our experience of reality in the moment. Now, the way that I approach hypnosis is to say, okay, look, we do not actually live in the world as it is. We only ever living in the world as our mind is presenting it to us. So in each and every moment, our experience of the world is not actually the world, right? It's something like it, right? Our experience of the world is not the world we experience, you could say. So we've got information coming in through our senses and we organize this information. We delete, distort, generalize. We do things with it and we turn it into our experience of everyday reality. This is what we do. Now, my approach to hypnosis recognizes this, so I'm not looking to take somebody into a special state. I'm just looking at where I want to take somebody or more specifically help somebody go. The way I work hypnotically is as a co-creative process with the person I'm working with. I do this almost exclusively these days for purposes of helping people make changes in their lives very occasionally. I'll do a little bit of fun street hypnosis stuff, but it's super, super rare these days. So I'm working directly with people's what I call their reality shaping faculties, so to speak. And and that's a poetic term. It's not a scientific term. So please bear with me on that. And I'm using my language and communication to lead them in different directions. My definition of hypnosis that I generally use, working definition, is the use of language and communication to direct attention lead cognition and seed ideas for the purpose of leading somebody into an altered experience of reality. Okay, I might come back to that definition. Depends how this podcast episode unfolds. Now, the second thing that's kind of aligned with this is I've got a question in on one of my training programs. I think it's the Hypnosis Mastery Program 2.0, which if you're interested, you can connect with on hypnosiswithouttrance.com. And somebody in here has asked this question about my use of the term organizing reality. The lesson that the question has come in on is called A Note on Organizing Reality. That's why I've decided to use that title for this podcast as well. Now, as I'm answering this question, I don't actually know what the content of that lesson is. I haven't listened to it back, but I have got a general sense of what I'm likely to have been talking about. 
So the question here is, when we organize reality, what exactly in reality are we organizing? How are the things in reality ordered? And how does this ordering impact reality? How is the organizing of reality actually done on autopilot? And how about manually? Okay, so these are good questions. Somebody's saying, James, you're being, you're being too vague here. You're not telling us exactly what is going on. Now, the fact of the matter is, is probably a lot of these questions will get answered as this person makes their way through the material, because this is quite an early on question, but I'm going to address it anyway. And instead of addressing it inside of the program, I'm going to address it out here on Agents of Everything, because, well, it seems like a good place to do it. And whilst this podcast is not about hypnosis, it's about us and how we show up and engage with the world and how effective we are in, in creating the results that we want inside of a world that we cannot control. Okay. Now, actually, a lot of the time when I'm working with clients, I might be working using hypnotic tools and this kind of thing. But what I'm actually helping those people to do is become more adaptive in how they meet the world. And that often means loosening up rigid renderings of reality that don't fit with the reality out there so well. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff about helping people reorganize their reality. I use this term. I say we're always organizing our reality. And if we want to have different results, we want to reorganize our reality. This creates a different being, you know, a different way of being, a different ground of being, a different place to come from. And I've talked about this elsewhere on the podcast, the be, do, have model. From our ground of being, what unfolds from that is our engagement with the world, that's doing, and what further unfolds from that are the results we co-create with the world, that's having. Okay, so be, do, have, it all fits in. So whether you're interested in hypnosis or not, you're interested in human beings and the nexus of mind and life. Well, this is equally relevant. Okay, so I want to go through these questions here one by one. And I want to say up front that what I'm talking about here is I'm trying to talk about a complex system. And the thing that marks complex systems is they are not only more complex than we think, but they are more complex than we can think. What makes a complex system a complex system is that there are Many, 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 many unknown and often unknowable interdependencies within the system. Right? So basically, we cannot wrap our heads exactly around how it works. We cannot map exactly how it works. Now, this is true with everything in life. Objectivity, objective truth, it's a worthy goal, but it's also a goal that will always remain it's a good direction of travel, but we can never quite get there. So I'm going to do my best to get towards some kind of objective, loose rendering of what's going on in answering this question. But I want to make it absolutely clear, you know, how I see it is, is not how it is, right? The map is not the territory here. The territory we're looking to map is complex indeed. Okay, so first question here. When we organize reality, what exactly in reality are we organizing? What we're organizing is the information that comes in through our senses. Okay. Now, assuming somebody has their full range of senses, this would include their eyes, their ears, their tactile sense. So a lot of sense and sensation that's coming in from the outside world, so to speak. I will also say that our central processor, if you like, our, our brain, mind, whatever, is also receiving inputs from the inside. We have interoceptive information that's coming up. Now, I want to be clear here. We do not 
have awareness, conscious awareness for all the data that's coming in through our senses. Okay. We do not, we do not also, let me just say this. First of all, our senses do not receive all the information there is to receive about the world. So people will know that dogs have a different hearing frequency range, for example, so they can hear things that we can't hear. Different creatures will see different slices of the light spectrum. We don't see everything there is to see in a sense. So our basic sensing equipment is um, less than perfect to start with. It doesn't receive everything, or maybe it is more than perfect because it would be overwhelming. We don't need a lot of the information that might be there to come in. Okay, so we have information coming in from the outside into our senses. We also have interoceptive information and proprioceptive information, all sorts of stuff coming from within our body system. And these things, this information is all working together, but it's disorganized raw data when it comes in. So the question here is when we organize our reality, what in reality are we organizing? Okay. It's not the things in reality. It's the data about reality that we receive light information, sound information, felt sense, all of this kind of thing. So this stuff comes in raw data through the senses. Next question here is how are these things in reality ordered? Now I'm going to assume that the questioner here is using the word ordered synonymously with organized. Okay. I think those two words have a very different feel to them. When I see something as ordered, there's a lot less, uh, a lot of rigidity in it and it kind of feels sort of linear, but organized to me, um, has a little bit more life in it and a bit more multidimensional feel, but that's just me. So I'm going to translate this into organized. How are things in reality organized and how does this organization impact reality? Okay. Now, um, I'm not. I'm not a hundred percent sure what's being asked here. The question could be, how does this organization impact our experience of reality, our subjective reality, or it could be, how does this organization impact objective reality? The reality that is out there that exists aside from our beliefs about it, right? That we might not be able to know directly, but that doesn't mean that it's not out there. The truth is out there. We may not get to know it but we can pull up alongside it and get close. Um, so I'm going to answer both those questions. So first of all, I'm going to answer the first part. How are things in reality organized? All right. So this raw data, it comes in through our senses and we immediately pull it through sets of ideas about the world. Okay. Now I've said this elsewhere, when we come into the world as babies, we have some reflexes, but we have no worldview. We have no sense made of the world. Okay. No ideas about how things work. We just have reflexes, a suckle reflex, uh, a flinch reflex. Maybe we've got these basic reflexes and we need people to look after us because we have no power, right? A baby has no power. Even if a baby could walk and move its limbs in a coordinated way, it still wouldn't really have any power in the world because it wouldn't have made any sense of the world, right? We make sense of the world. We acquire ideas deeply held, pre-linguistic deep down about the world and how it works so that we can bring ourselves to bear upon the world. But those ideas that we acquire, that sense that we start to make, that understanding that we start to build about how things are, actually shapes our experience. 
Because when the data comes in through our senses, we are immediately seeing that data through our ideas about how things are and are not, what is or isn't so. Okay. Now, let me give you an example of this. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example I was giving in the piece I was writing for Freddie Jackwin's book. When I look at my dog, right, I look at him and he's there and I go, oh, isn't he cute? And I have a warm feeling um, and, a, and a loving feeling because I love my dog, right? Really, what's true is I create an experience of love in myself when I receive data through my senses about my dog being there. Or maybe I think about my dog when he's not there, when my attention goes to the creature I experience or refer to as my dog, right? So I have a particular experience of my dog because the data that's coming in through my senses when I look at him is being pulled through all the ideas that I hold uh, outside of consciousness. And some of them I can maybe consciously access, but they're all deep unconscious ideas. Uh, I pull that data through my ideas about him and it creates my experience of him in the moment. However, yesterday morning, when I was out walking my dog, there was a moment where a lady turned around and she saw my dog and she leapt back. She actually leapt back and then she started edging around this building to stay as far away from him as possible. And the look on her face I could only describe really as uh, a mild panic. She was obviously having a very different experience with my dog. So she was getting data coming in through her senses about this dog. She was pulling it through a whole different bunch of ideas about dog, right? Different set of understandings about what's going on. So her experience is very, very different. Okay. Now, I want to say something about how this is relevant to life and how this is relevant to hypnosis. Obviously, that's relevant to life because if our experience of things is being created and we're acting from our experience of things or behaving from our experience of things, then if we don't like what's unfolding from us in terms of behavior, engagement, and results, the place we want to change that is at the, the beginning, at the front end. Okay. So for example, if I feel that my career is not progressing because I'm unable to make the public presentations that I want to make because every time I find myself thinking about that or getting in that situation, the ideas I have about things create an experience of danger or threat. And that in turn unfolds into a desire to move away and a behavior of moving away. So instead of striding forward towards the opportunity to present what I want to present, I hang back, maybe give somebody else the opportunity instead. Okay, simple point. Now, in terms of hypnosis, hypnosis is the use of language and communication by my definition. Those are my tools, language and communication, to direct attention, lead cognition and seed ideas. Those are the, the uh, what I'm doing, by the way, with the tools uh, for the purpose of leading somebody into an altered experience of reality. That is the result. So, for example, somebody who is dog phobic, if they wish to become not dog phobic, they need to re-render, reorganize their understanding of dogs. Okay. So what that would mean is changing some of the deep concepts they hold. I don't mean intellectually, I mean in an embodied way and, um, and accessing perhaps some different concepts. They need to conceptually render dog in a different way. Okay. So again, 
conceptually render. You know, someone could say, well, you're just begging the question, James. I've asked, how do you organize reality? And you're saying you do it by conceptually rendering. As I've said, this is difficult to get close to what's actually going on. I'm going to use sometimes poetic terms rather than scientific, scientific ones. Conceptually render means this. Each idea that we have about something, we could call a concept, right? So we bring concepts to a thing to render it up, make it up in our experience, right? So for example, I might look at a chair over there and I'm looking at a chair and I've already bought the idea chair to, to bear upon the information that's coming in, right? I look at it. It's like, I cannot not see it as a chair. Even if I don't think explicitly, oh, it's a chair, right? I just know it's a chair, right? But it's not a chair, right? It's not a chair to a bat. It's not a chair to my dog. They don't have that concept. It might be a chair to my dog. I don't know. I suspect the one I'm looking at isn't a chair to my dog because it will be too small for him to sit on. He doesn't have the word chair. I want to make it clear. Words and concepts are not the same thing. Words may attach to concepts, but concepts can exist without words. Um, and if people are curious about that, I'll go down that rabbit hole another time. So I look and I immediately see chair. Chair comes to life because I cannot not apply the idea of chair to it. I don't go, what's that? Right? It's just a chair. So what I've done is I've brought a concept to bear upon that chair. Now, inside of the concept of chair, there's all sorts of stuff, all sorts of information, sense about the role that kind of item or object plays in the life of human beings and in my life. It might be that specific chair has some additional sentimental value. So I might be bringing other concepts to it. It doesn't, by the way, but it might do. Right? So I bring other concepts to it and that creates my experience differently. I have a particular attachment to this chair because it was, I don't know, my grandfather's chair or something like that. Right? So depending on the concepts that I'm bringing to that particular uh, quote unquote thing, it's going to create the experience that I have. Right? So I, how I have it conceptually rendered. Okay. Now, when our conceptual rendering changes, our experience of things changes. I think it's Stephen Covey that tells a story. I think it's Stephen Covey. I could be wrong. It's many, many, many years since I read his book, which is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, but I think it's Stephen Covey. He tells a story of being on a subway train and there's a guy sat there on the train and his kids are running riot up and down the train car. And He's saying, you know, he's there and he's seeing this and he's getting more and more annoyed that the father is just sat there paying no attention to the kids, just looking down, letting the kids run wild. And in the end, gets really, really angry with this father. So in our terms, he's experiencing the father in an angry way. I would say from a hypnosis perspective, he's in an anger trance towards the father, right? And he's caught up in all these ideas, all this sense-making, like, oh, you know, how disrespectful to other people here, what's wrong with him, you know, whatever. All the ideas he's bringing to bear upon this moment are creating his experience of the moment, his trance of the moment. So in the end, he snaps. He says to the guy, he says, look, will you just get your kids in hand? Right? They're creating a disruption for everybody else here in the car. And the guy's like, ah, uh, what? Oh, sorry. He says, their mother died this morning and I haven't told them yet. I just don't know how to. Now, in that moment on receiving this new information, this new set of concepts, Stephen Covey, if it was his 
story and a first person story, I can't remember. His trance shifts, his experience shifts, right? Because he's now conceptually rendering this situation up in a different way. He's bringing an entirely different set of ideas. This changes the experience. All right. So that's my answer to the question. How are things in reality organized? They are organized through concepts, right? The ideas that we bring to bear automatically upon. So the next part of this question is, and how does that ordering impact reality or how does that organization impact reality? We've just talked about how it impacts experience. Okay. The difference, the shift in conceptual rendering there suddenly has the person who was experiencing anger and frustration at this person to one of experiencing compassion, to seeing this person in a completely different way, to experiencing this person and the situation in a completely different way. So it impacts experience of reality. But how does that impact reality out there? Well, you know, this is a, this is, this could either be a simple question or it could go deeper, but we'll keep it at a simple level at first. At the very most basic level, it impacts how we show up and engage with reality, right? We're either moving towards things or away from things at the most basic level. We see things as, you know, obstacles or tools or whatever at the most basic level. I'm not saying this person is seeing the father as an obstacle or a tool, right? Maybe they were seeing them as an obstacle to start with, but now they have compassion for them. Right. What, well, the way we see things changes how we immediately engage behaviorally in our behavior, including our communication behavior. Now, I'm often saying we co-create the results of our lives. We co-create our reality all the time. That means I am always co-creating with my circumstances. Right? But to be in my power, I want to be able to show up in the most flexible, adaptive way. If I'm caught in anger in a situation, that might create a certain sort of energy. If I need to fight in the moment, that might serve me. But if I need to creatively problem solve, that doesn't serve me. Right? So an angry rendering of reality will not help me with my creative problem solving. So the organization of reality entirely impacts reality itself through changing our engagement with it. The reality out there, objective reality. Okay. Now, beyond that, it might also just simply change how I'm paying attention to reality, the options and the opportunities that I see in reality at a subtler level than just changing my behavior. It might actually just change what I perceive and therefore what I see as possible. Right. So, you know, I'm thinking about Richard Wiseman's book, The Luck Factor, and how he found that people who consider themselves very lucky and people they consider themselves very unlucky, he set up this uh, experiment where they would go to a coffee shop and there'd be loads of opportunities. There'd be money left on the floor. There'd be somebody that could offer them a great business deal or whatever. And the lucky people saw the opportunities. They saw the money lying around. They opened the conversation with the person and found that there was a useful generative connection to be made there. The unlucky people didn't. Literally, they didn't see the opportunities in the world, right? They just kind of blanked them out. They just didn't connect with them. So how we see the world it really affects the possibility we see in the world. It affects whether we see an alignment or not that could be generative, okay? Now, some people will go even further and say the way we see the world actually has a sort of uh, spooky and direct influence effect. 
Maybe, I don't know, but we don't need to go there to know that how we show up and how we engage significantly transforms the kind of habitual results that we get. So that's how this organization of reality impacts reality for all of us. So the next question here is, how is the organization of reality or the organizing of reality actually done on autopilot? So my hope here is that I've already answered this. It's done because we cannot look at a thing that we recognize. And if you think about it, it's very, very rare that you see something or hear something or whatever that you don't recognize or start to categorize in some sense. Right. Let's say I hear a sound, I hear a rumbling sound in the distance. I might think, what's that? But even if I'm thinking, what's that? I've already categorized it. I've already brought a lot of concepts to bear upon it. I might go, well, it's a deep rumbling sound, right? I may already be accessing the idea that it's machinery, that it's a machine generated sound versus an organic sound, right? You know, so I've got some categorization, some conceptualization already happening, even if I haven't fully identified what I think the sound is, it's extremely rare to hear a sound and have like, be completely like, I've never heard a sound like that before. That is an extremely rare thing. It's extremely rare to see a thing and go, I haven't seen anything like that at all before. Now, um, you know, there's some interesting cases that occur. I had one the other day because I look out my dog is, I mentioned my dog a lot here. Um, I'm walking my dog the other day and, and I'm looking out for other dogs because he's a bit hit and miss with other dogs. He can get a bit grumbly with other large male dogs. So I generally like to avoid that kind of situation. It means I'm sort of scanning for dogs. Now, the other day I had the experience where I thought I saw a woman with a black and white collie, right? I thought I saw a woman with a black and white collie. So that I glanced across, caught them in my field of vision, and then I looked back. And when I looked back, they'd sort of moved behind some other people. So I had this moment where I was still looking for the woman with the black and white collie, but there were other people in the way. So I'm looking, looking, looking. And at this point, if you'd have asked me, what did you see, James? I said, I saw a woman with a black and white collie. No question about it. Then the crowd kind of moved aside and I saw the woman again and she didn't have a black and white collie. She was walking along with a little toddler holding its hand. She wasn't holding a collie's lead. She was holding a toddler's hand. The toddler had like a black and white rain mac on. And I'm like, ah, oh. but if you'd have paused reality at that point and said, James, what did you see? I would have sworn I saw a woman with a black and white collie. Okay. So I had on autopilot applied misapplied, you could say, some ideas and some concepts, but it really created an experience. I know it was a fleeting moment, but like I would have gone, yep, that's, that's what I saw. That's what I would have put my money on. So this is done on autopilot because we cannot see a thing, hear a thing, you know, smell a thing without immediately and automatically starting to apply ideas to it, apply concepts to it, apply sense to it, to make sense of what it is. We don't hang out and in absolute mystery for long periods of time or really ever at all. Okay. So I cannot see a chair and not see it as a chair. It's really, really hard to do. And I don't know how to, to do that. You can sort of create an effect of it. You know, there's some exercises, a friend of mine, William Whitecloud, I think does this exercise where he has people in his workshops 
wander around and act as if, like in their experience, it doesn't have to be a big overacting, act as if they were seeing everything for the first time and they had no idea of what it was, right? Now we can sort of simulate this experience, but I would suggest that it's very, very hard to truly realize this experience. So that's how it's done on autopilot. It just happens because that's how the mechanism happens. We see the world through our ideas about it. As soon as we see something, ideas are triggered and those ideas participate in the shaping of our experience of it. So that's how that's done on autopilot. How is it done manually? Now, how it's done manually, there's one of two ways that this can be done manually. Now, in a sense, if you go back to my hypnosis definition, the use of language and communication, that's the tools to direct attention, lead cognition, and seed ideas. I'm going to talk about these three things because this is where we start to bring it into the realm of intentional influence. We want to intentionally influence this. As a hypnotist working with other people, and by the way, I'm not, uh, just for people listening to this who are, are not sure, and they go, well, James, I thought you were a coach. I thought you did coaching with people. I don't advertise my services as a hypnotist. It's just that I happen to have done a lot of exploration in that area, be quite well developed myself in terms of the tools of hypnosis. It's about language and communication. When I'm coaching people, I'm working with language and communication. Obviously, I'm using my understandings that I've got from hypnosis to, some people would call it, do conversational hypnosis. That is not mind control. When I'm working with a client, we are co-creating. I'm just using my understanding of how to shift and move this stuff on their behalf to help them reorganize their reality in ways that serve them. So I don't advertise my services as a hypnotist, but I do use what I know about hypnosis and what I've learned from the practice in helping people make the mind shifts that are going to serve them in creating what they want to create in their lives. I also, by the way, coach people on how to do this with themselves. Okay. I've got teaching materials around this, things like self-hypnosis and personal alchemy, which teaches some of that. It doesn't teach all of what there is to know about that, but it teaches some of that. So how about manually? So we've talked about language and communication. This is what we've got. When we're working with other people, what we've got is our language and communication. When we're working with ourselves, in a sense, what we've got is language and communication, right? We influence ourselves through language. I influence myself all the time through language. I have an internal toolkit of attention-directing questions, questions that evoke different sense. So if I find myself like caught in a moment just running away, I'll often stop and ask myself the question, what is it that's happening here? Okay, and when I'm asking that question, I'm directing my attention in a very specific way, not towards, oh, this person's doing this. It's like what's happening inside of my own internal processes and what's happening in terms of the processes between me and the other person, right? So I have this kind of meta-shifting question. What is it that's happening here? And I sometimes use this with other people. If I was, say, to get into an exchange and it rapidly got heated, I can either stay down in that exchange or I can stop and go, hang on a second, hang on a second. What is it that's happening here? And I've done this many times, and I gesture between myself and the other person, which is a way of directing their attention towards the exchange between us, not the content of the exchange between us. So this is an example of using language and communication to direct attention. It can be done internally, or it can be done to invite somebody else's attention to shift. Let's say somebody's caught up 
in an unresourceful state about something that happened earlier today at work, right? And they're caught up and they're going over it. Their mind is expanding it out and creating all sorts of terrible consequences to it. Um, and let's say you intervene with that person and you say, hang on a second, hang on a second, right? There's what happened earlier today, right? And they go, yes. And they go, and aside from that, there's every other way that you can feel and everything else you know that is true about you that has nothing to do with that, right? Now, if you do a piece like that, that's a simple use of language and communication to redirect attention for somebody. And I've also seeded some different ideas. I've seeded the idea that what happened earlier is not who you are. And there are many other ways. I can't remember what I just said. That was improvised. There are many other ways that you can be, right? So I'm, I'm directing attention and I'm seeding ideas. I'm also leading cognition because the way they're going to, they're going to use those ideas differently and I'm using their cognitive process. So my sequence that I just ran was a sequence of steps of leading their cognition to a different place and putting different ideas in, in that moment. So their attention shifts, their experience shifts, their conceptual rendering shifts, their state shifts. Now I was talking about my dog earlier. And I noted when I was writing the piece yesterday about my dog and how I felt love for my dog because of the ideas I was connecting with him through. I noticed that even a simple shift of instead of talking about my dog to talking about the dog, right? The dog. The dog is much more dissociating. It's much more distancing. So the use of language and communication to direct attention, lead cognition. I'm not accessing different ideas so much there radically different ideas, but I'm just stringing them together slightly differently by, instead of going my dog, right? The dog. If I say he's my dog and I look at him, I have a different experience than if I say he's a dog, for example, right? He's a dog. That's distancing. That's depersonalizing. It's reorganizing reality subtly through a different cognitive line. And it creates a different experience. Now, here's the thing. We're all self-hypnotists. We're all weaving each moment of our lives through how we think about it. But people often mistake their thinking as being separate from the experience of their lives. They think they're thinking about the experience rather than seeing that their, their thinking is what's creating the experience or at least co-creating it. So one of the ways that we can shift these things manually is by developing a powerful communication toolkit for directing attention, leading cognition, and seeding ideas. Now, this toolkit can be internally directed or externally directed, and there'll be overlaps between your external toolkit and your internal toolkit, but there are also different options and choices because I've talked about communication here as a one-directional thing, but communication is always bi-directional. It's about feedback loops, okay? So, when I'm working, say, with somebody else, if I want to shift their state, shift their attention, shift whatever, what I want to be doing is, yes, I'm using communication lines and they are structured in particular ways to move the mind sequentially, so to speak. But I, I can't control a person's mind. That is not a thing that I have any power to do. I can nudge. I can make offers. When I offer a new concept to somebody, a new way of thinking about something, 
the words that I'm offering don't carry the exact meaning that I offer, right? They are given to the other person and their reality-shaping faculties take them and make use of them in the way that they do. So I need to be monitoring. If I want to take somebody in a particular direction, I want to be able to monitor that the things I'm offering are taking them in the direction that I want. This is going to be partly through monitoring nonverbal feedback, right? What do I see shifting in them? Were they tense and they're now relaxing, right? Maybe a simple thing like that. Sometimes I don't know, you know, it's difficult to interpret maybe what that's, uh, what's coming back. So I might ask somebody, you know, so when you think about it like that, how is that different already? Right? And maybe they'll say, well, actually it looks a bit, looks a bit silly from here. Maybe they say. And I go, right, so it looks a bit silly. Yeah, and when it looks silly like this, what difference does this make? And they're like, well, actually, I don't know why I was bothered by it before. So maybe something like that. So you could get nonverbal feedback or you could get descriptive feedback. And then you can use that feedback back when you know, right, I have an intention to shift somebody's stage, shift somebody's attention, shift someone's being somewhere else. So you're paying attention to feedback loops. The same is true when you're working with yourself. It's just that the Feedback is going to come through different channels. Your feedback is going to be much more embodied. It's going to be involving your interoceptive system. Interoception is the input that you get from your body organs and systems, right? Proprioception will give you information about the position of your body that doesn't rely on sight. So if your eyes are closed and you've got your hand in the air, you probably know your hand's in the air, right? Even if you woke up with your hand above you, you'd probably quickly figure out that your hand was above you, even if you didn't remember consciously putting it there, rather than your hand being down by your waist, for example. Okay, so that's proprioception. Interoception is very, very subtle information that we are normally not conscious of that is coming back from our organs and from our body systems. Right? Now, there's... Um, there's research or there are, there are neuroscientists who are coming to believe, or perhaps absolutely do believe, that this interoceptive information is co-opted by our cognitive processing to create emotions on the stronger end of things, emotions that we experience. So our emotions are a cognitive co-opting of our interoceptive systems that come from an earlier stage of evolution, right? So our feelings and felt sense become significant in our experience of things. Also, aside from or underneath of perhaps strong emotions, there are subtle feelings that shift all the time that we're not normally aware of. These subtle shifts will be outside of consciousness. This is why there's a classic decision-making technique. You know, you, you say to somebody, they say, I can't choose. And you say, well, just toss a coin, right? Heads, you do this, tails, you do that. And then they toss a coin, it comes up heads and they go, and then finally their felt sense, they tune into their felt sense which is telling them what they really want to do. So felt sense is a subtle internal information system, which is very, very powerful. And one of the things that I teach people to do when I'm teaching them to work with themselves uh, in, you could call it self-hypnosis, you could just call it personal mastery, you know, learning to run your own experience from the inside out. I teach people to tune into and use what is called felt sense. Okay. Now, the example I gave you earlier between talking about my dog versus talking about the dog or a dog. A lot of people would go, well, it's just some words, right? Words are not that important. They don't realize until they feel in that these words feel different. 
that their experience changes. And I often do this with clients. Somebody says, oh, I should have done a better job, right? Or I shouldn't have let them go out on their own or whatever. Somebody who's got some great regret. Actually, I won't pick that example. I'll pick a, a less heavy example. So somebody says, you know, I, I should be able to do a better job than this, right? I might, if I'm working with a client and they say, I should be able to do a better job with this. I say, just as you say those words, just notice what comes up within your body, within your experience. And they go, uh-huh. I say, now I'm going to offer you a slight change. And I want you to just notice the difference. Just say to yourself, I could have done a better job than this, right? And they'll run that. And I say, so out of the two, what's different? What, what seems different? If they had like a different energy, what would be different? And they go, well, I, I don't know. I could have done a better job with this. Feels a little bit lighter, maybe. They might say something like that. I say, okay, so out of the two, it's a subtle difference, but out of the two, which one do you think moves you closer to you at your best? And which one would you say would move you further from you at your best? And they can usually make a pick, even when it's a subtle difference. Now, until I do this with somebody, they don't feel the difference. They don't experience it because their attention hasn't been directed. There we are, directing attention in that direction before. Okay. And if you ask them before, they go, well, it's just words. It doesn't make a big difference. But when you start tuning people into the difference that their thoughts and their way of thinking about things makes, and you give them this calibration point, right? Move you closer to or further from you at your best. They start to see the significance. Now, a lot of people learn from studying self-help materials that how we talk to ourselves counts. They go, well, I shouldn't use shoulds. Okay, ironically, right? I should really try not to should on myself so much. But they've never really had an experience of the difference it makes. It's just a theoretical thing. So a lot of what is important when it comes down to shaping our own reality is developing a refinement of our internal palate to be able to start to notice the subtleties in difference in experience when we slightly re-render how we think about things. I'm not talking about completely, you know, lying to ourselves about reality. I always say this, however we render up reality must be plausible to us. There's no point in me looking at a chair over there and trying to convince myself it's a giraffe. Okay. That's not going to fit. Right. But I could be looking at the chair and thinking to myself, um, you know, why do I have to have such an awful tatty old chair? I could be thinking that. Right? Or I could be thinking this chair is horrible. I want to get rid of it. But if I can't replace it at the moment, then maybe that's not a good thing to be thinking. Or maybe I look at my life, let's say. Let's, let's broaden this out. Maybe I look at my life and I, I'm looking at all the things I don't have and I haven't achieved. And that's a habit. And it creates a certain relationship to life. And does that relationship serve me? That's the question. Instead, I could be looking at my life and looking at everything that I do have, everything I have achieved. And that's going to create an entirely different experience of life. Now, I think this is a significant shift as well, just to sort of enter the land of woo-woo. I believe that the old Matthew principle, to those who have yet more shall be given, and to those who have not, even what they have shall be taken away. I believe this refers to an attitude of recognition. The more you recognize that you have achieved good things and you have created wealth in your life, the more it creates an automatic feedback loop that brings more of that to you. It doesn't have to be through mystical means either. But the more a person hangs out in what they have not 
got, the less they have and the more what they have slips away, right? So I believe that's about an inside-outside relationship, not an outside-outside relationship as most people see it, right? Most people go, well, the more money you've got, the more money you get. That may well be true. What I'm saying is the more you perceive, um, not necessarily gratitude, but acknowledgement of what is, the more comes to you, okay? So that might be a little bit out there for some people, but I'm going to throw it in the mix anyway. Okay, so that starts to answer some of the question about how you manually engage with this reorganization of reality. The last thing I'll say is the more of a palette you develop, the more awareness, the more acuity you develop for subtle shifts in experience and whether they bring you closer to you at your best or not, the more you can start what I would call sampling different reality tunnels. Now, when I say sampling different reality tunnels, what I mean is this. I'll give you an example. The time when this really first hit me, I was an NLP and hypnosis guy for a long time before I encountered my mentor, my former mentor. I haven't spoken to him for a while, though I have just contacted him recently and I'm hopefully going to get him on the podcast. But my mentor, Steve Chandler, who I started working with in 2013, I hired him as a coach, not as a mentor, but I do very much see him as a mentor as well. Steve was phenomenal. He reshaped my whole ground of being, okay? Or exposure to what Steve shared with me reshaped my whole ground of being. Before working with Steve, I was a pure NLP and hypnosis guy. And it would be very easy to look at that stuff as just a set of tools or something like this, right? We, we live in the world as it is, and we learn these tools of hypnosis and NLP to work with it. But the the world of hypnosis and NLP that I was in wasn't just a set of tools or understandings. It was encouched in a way of looking at the world, right? It's a reality tunnel. Now, I'm not saying there's no variance from one NLP trainer to another, but they often tend to speak the same kind of language. It's a similar, uh, what um, Robert Keegan would call a similar language culture, but I would call it a similar conceptual culture. There's a conceptual culture to NLP, let's just keep it to NLP, uh, that creates a certain reality tunnel. It creates a certain trance. It starts to shape experience. So the world through NLP eyes feels a certain way, pure NLP eyes. Now, when I first encountered Steve Chandler, a friend of mine said, let's go to this event in Marina Del Rey in Los Angeles and go to see this Rich Litvin and Steve Chandler, see what these people have got to offer. So I went over with my friend John and entered a whole new world. Right? A whole new language and conceptual culture. Now, it wasn't at odds with NLP, but it was very different in flavor and feel from NLP. And I experienced this difference. And part of the reason I think I experienced this difference so strongly and was aware that I'd experienced the difference is because I know about the concept of organizing reality already at that point, although I would have thought about it differently. And I had done quite a bit of work to develop my felt sense of acuity. So I had a high degree of awareness for my own processes of experience. Now, I'm often saying, like, people go, well, so what, James? Surely everybody witnesses their experience. By default, human beings are actually very poor witnesses to their own experience. They're so caught up in their experience, they're unable to hold their experience as object because they are subject to it. This makes it very hard to work with and make choices. You cannot change what you cannot hold as object. So if you're subject to a bunch of conceptual renderings, until you can hold those conceptual renderings as 
object, you can't really do anything with them, right? When I'm working with a client, I'm listening for their conceptual renderings and their organizations of reality. And I'm making guesses as to the effect they're likely to be having from them. And then I'm nudging things in different directions and paying attention with them as to whether it's bringing them closer to them at their best or further from. And in a sense, I'm working exactly the same with them as I would work with myself. Okay, the tools are different because it's interpersonal rather than intrapersonal. But the aim is the same. Okay, so the first time I kind of really noticed powerfully is when I shifted into this Chandlerian reality tunnel, I should call it, rather than the NLP reality tunnel. It's like, this is really different. And I noted how powerfully differently it shaped my engagement with the world. Now, people know who listen to this that I love NLP still. So it's not like those two reality tunnels, those two organizations of reality are in conflict. They can actually inform and nuance each other. And this is why when I teach NLP, you know, if I was to teach NLP, people would go, actually, James, you seem to render this up quite differently from a lot of other NLP trainers. And I do because I have different influences in how I think about things and how I approach things. There's a lot of overlaps between what I call Chandlerism, so to speak, and NLP. But there's a lot of differences as well. So instead of seeing those differences as conflicting, it's like, well, how can they enrich each other? So there's a little bit there about how you can do this manually, obviously, you know, that how, how do you do this manually? Or I would say, how do you do this intentionally with consciousness and intention? That is a huge arena. That is what personal mastery is about. And there's no end point. There's no point where you go, well, I've got the simple techniques. You just get better and better and better at doing it. Getting better at doing it is a two-way thing. It's like better at paying attention. Okay. You cannot change what you cannot see. If you can't make stuff object, you cannot work on it if you're in it. Okay, so there's that ability. I sometimes call it up above it and down in it, that ability to get up above and, and find out and hold as object the reality shaping material that you've been subject to, right? That's a skill set. You get better at doing it. You get better at seeing it. It's like if you develop as a chess player, you see more and more potentials in the positions on the board. It's the same. Okay, so that's the one thing is becoming a better witness to your own processes, more able to witness your processes rather than just being swept along by them. And the second thing is then, well, how do you bring your intentionality and your internal communications to bear upon that, to nudge things in different ways and then pay attention to those feedback loops that are coming out from that or the shifts and the changes that are coming out of it and to be able to judge, does that bring me closer to me at my best or put me in a more powerful ground of being or whatever your calibration point will be, okay? This is running an internal tote loop, test, operate, test, exit. Probably shouldn't have mentioned that. Someone's going to ask me what it is and I don't want to necessarily teach it here, but I might go into it somewhere else. All right. So I want to thank Emil, I shall say. Emil, I won't give the full name, who asked the question, who prompted this podcast response. And I want to see if you've got some value from this, please do give it a thumbs up. And uh, I want to just make it clear, by the way, recently I was watching a video by somebody who said, my stuff is not necessarily easy. I'm aware that some of the stuff that I share, a lot of people might come to it. And if it's completely new, they'll go, what on earth is this guy talking about? I am not pretending that I'm offering like easy five stage processes for transforming your life. Okay. What I do is I coach people in personal mastery. 
Personal mastery is something that happens overnight. Right? Personal mastery, and it's also a never-ending quest in a sense. There's no end point unless you go, do you know what? I've got enough of what I want. Right? There's no rule that says you have to continue. But I'm not trying to claim, like just because I coach people in personal mastery and I have an interest in that, I'm not claiming I am an absolute master of my own life. If somebody were to say to me, you know, James, you talk about personal mastery. How much of a master are you of your own life, of your own responses, of your own engagements? My answer would be, I have considerably more mastery than I used to have, but not as much mastery as I'm going to have. Okay, so I'm not here trying to claim like, look, this is, this is what you want to aspire to. I'm not, right? We're all on the same path. If we're interested in personal mastery, we're all walking the same path. Maybe I'm one or two steps ahead of you and I have some things that can help you out. I hope that is so. If I am a lot of steps ahead of you, that sounds really arrogant, but I don't mean it to, then you might go, well, what the hell is James talking about here, right? I just want the five-stage process. So I'm, I'm fully aware that what I'm offering here isn't necessarily beginner level stuff. If you are new to personal mastery, self-development, this kind of thing, um, then my hope is that this is the least entertaining and interesting for you and piques a little bit of curiosity. If you have any further questions, please do let me know. As I say, if you're listening to this anywhere like Apple, Spotify, please do rate this if you like this. And if you want to ask me questions, please do make sure you're signed up for the Agents of Everything Substack. You can ask questions there or bring things into the comments. And if you really want to engage deeply with me, you can join the Agents of Everything Nexus. It's a small monthly fee. We do a monthly open frame. You can show up. You can personally ask me questions. You can engage me in conversation about the things that you are deeply curious about. Okay, thank you for being here right here at the end. And I look forward to when we next connect.